These are the confessions of American Christians repenting of American Christianity. This is the world we made. Well, maybe somebody who's not Tim wants to start this one. Uh, not it. But not me. Yeah, <laughs> nose goes. Um, <laughs> let's talk civil disobedience. <laughs> if, when, and how. Right before my dad died, we went out to dinner one night. And I think it was after he spoke at Wheaton. Wheaton couldn't find anybody on campus to represent the anti-abortion position, and they had a woman from the Religious Coalition of Abortion Rights. She was going to speak at the student union, and they wanted the pro-life position. They called my dad over in Elgin, and he came to do it, and afterwards we went out to dinner. And I remember saying to dad, asking him whether he did not think that civil disobedience was proper with regard to abortion, because if, in fact, we would celebrate the 4th of July, which was rebellion to end taxation without representation, would it not be proper to rebel against a government which was slaughtering, what, a quarter of the lives that God put in the wombs of that government's Mm -hmm. population every year? Mm -hmm. And I remember my dad looking at me over dinner and just saying, no. Just (laughs) he He was just dismissive. No, 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 no. And I said, but why not, dad? And he was just like, no. And I never did get anything out of him that was close to an answer other than no. And so I just wanted to tell that story before you guys answer the question. (laughs) (laughs) The way that me and Jake became friends is that a mutual friend, a man who was a deacon at our church at the time, a man about my age, a very good friend of mine, Well, I should back up and I should say a well-known dude came and gave a speech against abortion and about fighting abortion and rabble-roused. And my friend was one of the rabble that got roused. Is that a fair summation? Uh, Let me back up and say what he actually said on the campus of IU was he said there is no action which is... The word wasn't incommensurate, but there is no possibility of an overreaction to abortion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he left it hanging out there and never qualified yeah. it. And never. And your friend had become a Christian through the preaching of this man. Hmm. And so it really took to his conscience, and he is a very tender conscience man. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well, so he had been thinking for years, because he is a man whose conscience can be afflicted by these sorts of things, he had been thinking for years about going and busting up plant parenthood, doing some kind of vigilante action. And his wife had always said, you have to tell me. And he went to her and said, do I have permission not to tell you? And she foolishly said, yes. I may be mixing up the timeline a little bit. But then he got a splitting mall, I believe it was. An actually really nice 
splitting mall. It was a very nice splitting mall. And <laughs> he went to confiscated. <laughs> yeah. I always say axe and then I always get corrected. It was a splitting mall. Splitting, did I say yeah, that? Uh, yeah. And so he went to Planned Parenthood the day before they were going to do the murders, which is Thursday in our town, or it was at the time at least. And he busted in in the middle of the night and he smashed up all their computers, smashed up their equipment. I think he threw paint over everything. Red paint over the lintels mm -hmm. of the front door. And it's important to say he then sat down and waited for the police. He had no intention of doing this as a secret thing. So we all find out sort of at various points early morning the next day. I remember being in the office when we all found out and watching everybody sort of react and this is a beloved myself. dude a deacon yeah. it's kind of a son of the church just and so and, and so we godly just, and godly very god and yeah. so we go into okay it's it's crisis management mode and part of our concern is the family part of our concern is also other young men who were there a part of the rabble being roused as nathan put it taking up the cause and going out and doing Likewise, And so what we decide as a pastoral staff to do is to break up the phone list in the church, all of the young men, and call. And somebody just did math, and we broke it up alphabetically, and I got A through whatever. And so the very first call I made was to Alberson, Nathan. And this was all really fresh and new for us. And we Who were probably at the time was the closest friend to the man that had busted up the abortuary. Yeah. That's right. Which I'm not sure I fully understood. But we're all processing this and sort of talking it through and trying to figure out how we're going to talk to people. But we're also like not going to waste any time. So I call Nathan first thing. And it's also, I guess, important to say in context that I had sort of, I had written Nathan off and I thought, he was a doofus. And I call Nathan, and Nathan has it is a mile ahead of me in terms of not just how he's processed the whole thing, but how he's put language to it and has analogies and handles. And so I found myself more helped, I thought, by talking it through with Nathan than Nathan was with me talking it through with him. <laughs> so much so that I just ended up taking all the handles that Nathan gave me in that conversation and using them in every single phone call afterwards. And I came away just thinking, man, this guy is sharp and discerning and ahead of the curve. And I was wrong to write him off the way that I had. I need to get to know this guy. That's the story of actually where our friendship was forged. It started there. And then we learned to work together. And I began to involve Nathan as I came to know him and understand his gifts and various projects and things we were doing. We started a magazine. And it was just a process of challenging and encouraging Nathan to use his considerable gifts to serve the church. Well, I wish I could remember all the brilliant insight I had so we could... Uh, the only thing that <laughs> I remember is Batman was part of it. So Yeah, well, of course, Batman is always part of any great beginning. But... <laughs> I think where I was at when we talked was, if you want to imagine a hypothetical reality where Roe v. Wade came down and all the churches got together and by the authority vested in them, they said, we are going to stand against this. And it became a move. If you want to imagine that, that's a nice thing to imagine. But we do not, as children of God and as children of the church, get to be 
vigilantes. We do not get to be Batman. We do not get to take it upon ourselves individually to rebel. Rebellion against the authority that God has put in place is such a serious thing that while it is sometimes necessary, those kinds of decisions have to be made by men who are themselves under another authority and by people together. And our friend, our mutual friend, he just wanted to achieve some kind of catharsis for the guilt that he felt about being part of this wicked culture, this culture with blood on his hands. He was ultimately, he was doing something selfish. He was doing something selfish. He was seeking his own catharsis through doing this action that, yes, maybe saved lives the next day. Maybe those lives were ended the next week. I don't know. But you don't get to make a unilateral decision all by yourself to solve the problems of the world. I always think of that psalm. I can never remember which psalm it is, but the one where David says, I have not considered matters too big for me. 131. 131. And what's the, as long as you have it, can you just read it? Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. And I just think David is the king. It's his responsibility to occupy himself with all kinds of things, great and small. And he is the king. He is a type of Christ. If he, in his humility and his godliness, can say, you know what? I'm going to bed. I'm not going to consider things that are too big for me. Then we have to have that attitude. Our friend can't just say, well, I'm going to solve the problem of abortion. I'm going to blot out my guilt and the guilt of my friends and family by doing one signal act of contrition. We don't get to do that. So that's my answer to the question. I don't know if that's a satisfying answer for anybody, but I think that's my answer. So later that day, we called a special meeting of the Board of Elders, and we called that man's father-in-law in. So his father was already in the session of the church, and his father-in-law was not an elder. But we called him in. He was a respected man in the church. We met at my house in our living room. We had the protester there that had painted blood over the doorposts and who was himself already a father of a number of children. We had his father there. We had his father-in-law there. We had all the pastors and all the elders. And it was a very interesting discussion, very, very interesting, because we started by asking him questions about why he had done what he had done. One of the things we focused on was, what were you thinking in terms of the future of your ability to be the father to your children? Because God has given you a number of children, they're little. Did you think that you could just expect the church to father your children that you have been given by God? And it was pretty clear that he had not thought past the end of his nose. He had not considered the cost of his battle. And so I think it may be a little bit uncharitable for you to say it, but I think you're right. I think that it was largely... I think maybe the catharsis, the sense of repentance for the sins of his nation overwhelmed his recognition of the battle he was engaging in, the weightiness, the cost, all that. 
One of the things that I remembered very clearly from the discussion is early in the discussion, his father-in-law looked at him and said to him, what were you thinking? You should not be the one that do that. I am ashamed. I'm the one that should do that. Hmm. And I remember at that time, there was a sort of wave of affirmation that followed that statement on the part of every man in that room, that if it should be done, he was the last person in that room that should do it. I remember thinking that myself because I was past the years of having children in my home. And as the elders discussed it, the elders ended up censuring him, rebuking him for not getting counsel. I think that that was the main issue that we felt was a failure. We did not rebuke him for taking the law into his own hands. I think it's easy to argue in defense of civil disobedience with abortion. And I say easy intentionally. I remember one time there was a child of our church that was born very premature, went up to Riley Children's Hospital, went into the newborn intensive care unit neonatal. And I went in to visit this little one, and I was not with the child's mother or father. And so there were a bunch of bassinets with each one had its own nurse. And I was so struck with how tiny these little babies were. And the unbelievable investment of all of us into protecting the lives of these little ones, okay? Full attention of not just the parents, but here I was, but of the nurse. And all the technology, all the wealth, all the unbelievable care. And for some reason, a nurse, one of the Niku nurses was next to me. And we were looking around the end of a wall at a bassinet that was about 20 feet from us. And I don't know what got into me, but I turned to the nurse. She was a young thing, a woman. And I said to her, if you saw me with a rifle aimed at that little one in that bassinet, and you knew that the only way that you could stop me from shooting and killing that baby was by killing me yourself, would you kill me? And she said, yep. <laughs> And so the issue of civil disobedience is not an easy issue. I was struck a couple days ago. I was reading in Acts, Acts chapter 7, the sermon of Stephen, right before he's martyred. And it had never hit me before that in that sermon, he says this. So he's giving the history of Israel. But as the time of the promise was approaching, when God had assured to Abraham the people, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew not Joseph. This is the NASB 95, who knew nothing about Joseph. Then verse 19, speaking of this new king of Egypt, this new pharaoh, it says, It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. I'd never noticed that before. It very clearly ascribes intent to the Hebrews in the death of their children. And that that exposing of their children is caused by the oppression of the Egyptians. Hmm. Now, I don't know why I'm bringing that up, except to say that I think that all the talk during COVID and around the election and President Trump and vaccinations and riboflavin or 
intermeddling or whatever that's what's that horse stuff ivermectin uh, oh yeah ivermectin yeah if you look in scripture for anything approximating some resemblance to what you hear okay you don't find anything mm. you just don't find it and you do find oppression and suffering that is infinitely worse Nothing about Nero, nothing about Caligula. Yeah, yeah. And it's not that God doesn't cause his people to fight and to kill the oppressor. That's not my point. But my point is, it is not an easy thing for us to know how to relate to civil authority. And our relationship to it must start with Romans telling us that all authority is given by God. And here, clearly, it talks about the oppression of the Egyptian king causing the Hebrews to expose and kill their babies. People might be offended at that and say, well, the Hebrews aren't killing the babies. The Hebrews are just exposing the babies. And I say, is there a difference with a distinction there? If you put your child out on the sides of the rivers, on the riverbank, on the hillsides, is that not murder? Is it not required by the Sixth Commandment to do everything to protect life? Do you really think that leaving a child outside to the elements is not tantamount to murder. So I think we have to be very, very careful to recognize the difficulty of this issue. But now the person that's listening is just saying, well, you've convinced me it's complicated. I didn't convince them that it's complicated. (laughs) I would say any idiot knows it's complicated. And we have to avoid taking the law into our own hands. And we have to avoid getting catharsis by having one Herculean effort to get rid of our greed, to get rid of our... Although in some cases, you could say that Jesus is arguing in favor of catharsis and Herculean efforts when he tells us to cut off our hand. Mm. (laughs) You know? I'm just wanting us to be honest in the podcast and say that we did rebuke him. Mm -hmm. It was not right for a young father to go out and do what he did without considering the cost and without getting wise counsel. But what if we had a bunch of governors who decided to go together and depose the federal government? I'm all in favor of it. Is it legal? The federal government will say no. Isn't that what the Civil War was? What if we have Texas secede and the federal government says it's unlawful? Am I in favor of it? Yes. What if pastors call the governor of Texas to secede? Am I against pastors calling the governor of Texas to secede? Absolutely not, even though I'm a resident of (laughs) Indiana. (laughs) I just want us to be very careful in recognizing the command of Scripture to submit to authority, including evil civil authority, because it was Nero who was the emperor of Rome when the Apostle Paul wrote that. But also to realize that American law is founded on the principle that God has given to men certain inalienable rights, Mm -hmm. among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Mm -hmm. And so, as I have said to an appellate judge in our church and have said to lawyers who have been in our church and have said to a very high government leader in our state, if we do not protect life at the margins, the feeble, the elderly, the disabled, the unborn, there is no rule of law. Or whatever you're calling a rule of law is protecting the ability to make money off the stock market, but not protecting those who are most unable to protect themselves. And I don't want to dignify that by calling it the rule of law. 
So then people will say, well, you're just saying that there is no legitimate authority then. And that's exactly what the belligerators are saying when they were told to wear masks. And I say something about one doesn't resemble the other. And so I think we have to be very suspicious of our motives when we decide that we're going to set aside the authority of the state and going to take the law into our own hands, which is what you were saying, Nathan. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. But I also want us to recognize that as citizens of a constitutional republic, we have an obligation to hold our authorities accountable. So I don't know if I've just thrown bombs in this discussion. No, I think, and maybe maybe somebody wants to help the old man out. I think I'm the old man. Right, yeah, no, that's what okay. I'm saying. Um, <laughs> how do I know the difference? That's, that's what I think probably some well-intentioned listeners are thinking is like, Okay, so sometimes, but sometimes not. And I understand the broad principles that you're talking about, but how on earth am I supposed to know whether one is one or one is the other? Well, remember from the time that John Piper gave a sermon saying he was going to go and get arrested, Mm -hmm. I have respected him. But it's one thing to go and to get arrested because you refuse to move. It's another thing to go and take a splitting mall and paint and to destroy (laughs) something. And so part of the answer to this is getting counsel, counting the cost, not seeking personal emotional catharsis or being able to recognize when that's all one's doing. Mm -hmm. But it's also a function of the level at which one engages in civil disobedience. Well, if John Piper is going to make a statement to his church and going to have, in some sense, counted the cost, what he's doing is making a, a public statement. Right. He's made a calculated decision as an act of civil disobedience to put himself on the line as a public statement. That's very different than seeking personal catharsis. We did have pastors right? step across the line. You talked about Terry Shavo. I forget whether you were one of them, but we, we did have No, Max. Max. Yeah, I knew was, I knew Max was. We did have pastors talk step across the line to make that public statement. And he got busted. Right. So there's acts of war. There's acts of personal catharsis, and there are registered objections where you put yourself on the line with a hope to produce some form of change. You're willing to go to jail, but maybe it'll become a case that goes to the Supreme Court. Maybe it'll wake other people up. Maybe it will start a movement. But in that case, it's a nonviolent act. He's going to go and he's going to stand on the doorstep. He's going to force them to arrest him, and he's going to force the issue into the courts and into the public square. It's a conscientious decision that when you give a sermon talking about it is obviously calculated Mm -hmm. and has an intent behind it to affect change beyond I feel tension and want relief. But the man that got busted at the abortuary, do you really think we can dismiss his action that easily? Well, we're talking broadly about anyone listening who might take it upon themselves to do something in the night in an unconsidered way, right? Isn't that part of the question here? Because we're talking about tensions. We're talking about the tension that I, as a young college student felt, where it's like, well, shouldn't I do something? And am I complicit? And don't I need to go take up arms? Well, there may be zeal and there may be some element of faith mingled with my desire for relief and catharsis and all kinds of other yeah, things. Yeah, I'm not denying that. I guess I was a little uncomfortable with the way Nathan said that he was just seeking a catharsis. And the reason was not because I disagree with Nathan. 
I think that we need to say that Nathan knew that man better than anybody did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so we as elders did not make that judgment. Right. Mm. What we made the judgment was he had no privilege, no right to take that into his hands without getting counsel. Well, it's also true that at that time in my life, at least, I would never have had the kind of courage, fortitude, and moral responsibility that it takes to make that kind of terrible mistake. Isn't that now? Now, exegete, that statement. (laughs) I wasn't enough of a moral, godly man to be that stupid. In other words, I wasn't going to make a mistake like my friend made. I wasn't going to sin like my friend, but it wasn't because I was more godly than my friend. It was because I was less godly than my friend. I I don't know how else to say it. Levels of tension, right? There's the, I refuse to feel any tension about this. There's the, I feel so much tension about this. I want and feel compelled to find some relief somewhere. And I need somebody to hold me back or I need older, wiser people to counsel me. And then there's the, I have learned somehow to live uncomfortably with this tension by faith because I understand to some degree, although I'm not fully comfortable with it, what it means to be in the world and not of the world. And I've looked back and I've read about Nero and I've read about the babies on the hillsides and I look at the face of all this evil and I am vexed by it and I don't know what to do and I know that God will require it of all our hands. And yet there are so many places in scripture where I pray for God's justice. I trust to the judgment seat of God. I refuse to be crippled by it because our work is the work of the kingdom. And so then we turn to the foundational fundamental things, which again is where we started this conversation. Abortion is a symptom and it's a symptom of deep rebellion against God. And so what's our job? Our job is to reconcile men to God and it is to confess the truth and be a witness against the evil that is abortion. And it's to instruct men to love their wives and their children and wives to love their husbands and their children and to raise godly and strong families and to understand and discover what it means to be made in God's image and what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman and what it means to be a child. And we have to give ourselves constantly to that foundational work and to articulating it and to fighting that fight. But there's this whole spectrum because you understand there's apathy and there's a kind of apathy that just is a cynical futility in the face of evil. And then there's the beginnings of hope that lead to the tension, that lead to the desire for relief in action. What I find myself wanting to say is be very careful, especially if you're a man and listening to this. We don't need to worry as much about women. Men have testosterone and that causes them to make certain kinds of mistakes that women generally don't make. And because of our testosterone, we are willing to think that, yes, it is true. The sin is deep. It's entangled with many other sins. Yes, it is true. I looked at pornography last week, and so I have no moral authority this week to oppose abortion. Yes, it is true that things are complicated and that I should count the cost. Yes, it is true. But aren't you really just making an argument for doing nothing? That's how a young man will hear what absolutely, you're saying. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. And so what I want to say is this. I would have heard it that way too. Yeah. What I want to say is, first of all, there's a reason that God places younger men under older men. Mm-hmm. All right, number one. Number two, who you place yourself under needs to be considered carefully. I have a friend in the ministry who 
on YouTube has gone on saying, if you try to give me a vaccination, I'll put a bullet in your forehead. In his sermon Sunday morning, that is not a man who is godly and you should now, I said he's a friend. Yeah, he is a friend, but I don't trust him anymore. And so, young men, you need to be under authority that is not blowhard, wacko. And it's so hard as a young man Mm. to discern the difference between wisdom and cowardice. Because that's going to look like wisdom to you in the middle of COVID. You're going to have Mm. so much pent-up anger. And wisdom will look like cowardice. That's right. And that's the third thing I want to say is, and furthermore, would you please read the New Testament with the context of everything that's done and said there? in your mind and realize that the Apostle Paul is not calling everybody to go to Rome to protest the exposure of infants. And you might say, well, that's an anachronism. That's not what was going on then. Then they were preaching the gospel. And I say, yeah. And so why weren't they being called by God? Why is it every time they tried to get Jesus to be the one that ended the tyranny? Isn't that precisely why nobody had any patience for Jesus, including Judas? Because he wouldn't end the tyranny, Lord. Then will the kingdom come in? And Jesus says, it's not for us to know. It's not for us to know the times and the seasons. They were constantly trying to get Jesus to scream and belligerate against the tyranny. And resolve all the tension. Yeah. And it's like, look, it is not cowardice to preach the word. I defy you to show me a more difficult job in America today than to preach God's word. I've bailed hay. I've worked on the railroad as a car knocker and air brakeman. I've, you know, Merle Haggard. I've done it all. And I'm telling you, preaching and counseling and pastoral care are the hardest work I've ever done. Don't you patronize pastors who say that, no, you shouldn't go and bust up the abortuary. Come on, read the Bible and see the context socially, politically, legally. The context of oppression, of slavery. And what does the Bible do? The Bible consistently shows a sort of, how would I put it, a sort of take-it-or-leave-it approach to the things we suffer in life, even to slaves. Well, yeah, if you can get your freedom, get it. Hmm. And so don't think that you're the only one in the world that has real courage. What you probably— Or real convictions or a real conscience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that because some guy says, hey, try to give me a vaccination, I'll put a bullet in his forehead. And it's about like that that he says it on the YouTube, right? Are you guys going to confirm yeah. this Yeah, oh, me? I confirm. It's true. I confirm. I haven't seen it. <laughs> Chose not to. And so we have to be very careful and humble and do what God calls us to do, us to do, not other men, us. And you might say, well, you're telling us what we shouldn't do. And I say, yeah, that's generally the job of older men is to warn younger men to not think that because they've got something burning inside of them, that that must be the inspiration of God. Yep. <laughs> yep. And again, early in the conversation, you were talking about the pro-life movement attracts two kinds of people, sincere, conscientious, godly people and actually pretty wicked people. But the point is, every time I see somebody who is like that, I've seen it enough. I've watched it enough. You know what the word is? I just thought of it. Demagogue. (laughs) Well, and it's a great word because those men are a law unto themselves. And that's why so many of them, at the end of the day, whether it's catharsis or whatever it is, there is always real deep 
sin that they refuse to fight in themselves. So they have to have a battle outside of themselves that feels cosmic. And that's what most preachers do is they preach about the sin outside of the church because they don't want to face their own sin and the sin of their their congregation. That's right. And so the guy that comes and is accusatory or who's like, where are you? Or why weren't you on the front line? Whatever. My assumption is like, all right, this guy's dangerous. There's an evil that he is protecting, that he's hiding there are people being hurt. There's a good chance that it's his wife, that it's his kids, that it's something else, whether he's abusing his kids sexually, there's some deep sin in his past with his wife. Pornography and beating his wife. Yeah, whether he's got a secret habit of going to massage parlors or finding male prostitutes. These are the kinds of things that you end up finding out later down the Mm -hmm. line about these types Mm -hmm. of people. And it's just like always... Huge red flags. Mm-hmm. Well, and they prey on the young men that have something burning exactly out inside right. of them. That's yeah. a person with low sales resistance. Anyone who is a slave to any kind of lust is who you sell something to. And so if you're a demagogue, you sell yourself to someone who has something burning that you can manipulate, manipulate or channel. I'd almost say that anybody that's going to take part in civil disobedience of any sort should only do it because those in authority over them have told them to do it. I think if people just want a yes or no paradigm, that's the one. Maybe maybe it's a little simplistic somehow, but mm-hmm. if you just need that, okay, well, uh, what do I do? Then hmm. just think about it that way, if you're going to take that risk. And if you tell us that you can't trust your pastor and your elders because they're compromised... I'll say to you what I said to a friend who is a black man and was describing to me the weakness of the older black men in his life when he was growing up. His father had left his mother. And very delicately, I said to him, you have to understand that there is a certain payout for the black women that you knew by having weak black men. In other words, in his cultural context, there was a relationship between the generational weakness of the men and the strength of the women that was not absent moral content. And I would say the same thing to people who choose to be in churches where they don't trust their pastors. Hmm. If you have put yourself under an authority that you think is weak and cowardly, why have you trusted them to protect your soul through their preaching, but you don't trust them to make a decision about whether or not you go down and get busted at the abortuary? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's so important that we realize that the church we choose and the shepherds that we place ourselves under inevitably, inexorably, are going to produce fruit over a lifetime in us and our wives and our children that is going to be either beautiful or horrible because we are what we eat. And when it comes to the issue of civil disobedience, you better be careful. You better be careful. Support the world we made and the writing and speaking of Tim Bailey, please give at patreon.com forward slash out of our minds. To support Warhorn Media more generally, you can make a tax deductible donation at warhornmedia.com forward slash give. And don't forget to rate and review, subscribe and share. Thanks and God bless. Thanks for listening.